This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast series, From Backstreet to Wall Street, where entrepreneurs from around the world use innovative business models to solve some of the world's most pressing business problems. Leaders in the impact investing movement who are providing the capital to fuel the growth drive these conversations. Your hosts are Mukupandya, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton, and Doreen Shinaz, Founder and CEO of Impact Investment Exchange, one of the pioneers in promoting impact investing in Asia. Speaking of impact investing movement, um, which has really gained a lot of momentum all over the world, um, and it seems like this is something that's growing and is here to stay, and we have in, in today with us Fran Siegel, the director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, where she is working towards building an ecosystem that can help broaden and deepen the impact investing space by creating a ground for various stakeholder collaboration. Fran, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us today. Doreen, thank you for having me. Wonderful. So, uh, Fran, one thing we do always with the show is we always ask our guests to start off with their personal story. So what got you started in this journey from connecting the back street to Wall Street and to promote impact investing? Sure. I started my career in philanthropy, actually, as a program officer at a family foundation in Los Angeles. Uh, This was um, in the early to mid-90s and thought that we were doing very progressive grant-making at the time Um, around uh, social issues and the arts. But over time, I started becoming more interested in how the endowment was invested and whether it was invested uh, in alignment or uh, across purposes uh, unconsciously to the purpose of the uh, foundation itself. And so that line of inquiry led me to business school at Harvard where I charted my own path of study in a way, um, looking at uh, a a type of investing where you could get strong financial returns and philanthropy-style impact returns. And that thinking culminated in a paper that I wrote for my venture capital professor that really formed the blueprint for my career since graduating. And so since leaving business school, I've either been uh, running or consulting to for-profit mission-driven businesses and funds um, or investing in them. Right. So, you, you, um, you know, it really seems like, you know, you really believed in this whole process of using um, the philanthropy funding and looking at uh, how to stimulate and really, you know, open up the private sector capital or even using the endowment in the philanthropy side. And, um, I have to also mention to my audience that you are with the Ford Foundation. Now, where does Ford Foundation fit in with the U.S. Um, Impact Investing Alliance? And could you tell us a little bit about both and what their practices are? Of course. Uh, first, just to clarify, the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance is being incubated by Ford. Uh, so while we sit at Ford, we are supported by a broad coalition of uh, funders, including philanthropies, um, corporate foundations, and high net worth families. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll speak a little bit about Ford in a moment. 
Um, but if I, if I may speak a sure, bit absolutely. about the alliance yes, and tell ex- explain yes, what absolutely, it is. absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrific. Um, so the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance uh, is a field-building organization, as you, as you touched on earlier, and we seek to advance the practice of impact investing in the United States. Um, when we speak about impact investing and work in impact investing, we approach it across the asset class spectrum from cash to the public markets, the capital markets, mm-hmm. to the private markets as well. Um, we have a long-term vision to place measurable social and environmental impact at the center of investment decision-making alongside risk and financial return. And uh, we are led by an advisory board that is chaired by Darren Walker, who is the president of the Ford Foundation. Maybe I can speak a little bit later about um, how policy really motivated a recent announcement uh, by Darren Walker at the Ford Foundation around mission-related investing. Uh, But first, I'd like to just touch on the three areas that we work in, and we can dig in wherever you're interested, Doreen. Mm -hmm. Um, The first area... First area we work on is advocacy, so um, mm-hmm. advocating for an enabling policy environment uh, for impact investing. Uh, the second is catalyzing institutional capital flows for impact, uh, mm-hmm. and there we work uh, mainly with foundations, but also with donor advised funds and, and some pension funds as well. And then finally, uh, we work to build the movement in the United States, but also globally. We're part of the Global Steering Group on Impact Investing, which is a group of 18 countries plus the EU, uh, focused on catalyzing a global movement of impact investing. Mm-hmm. So where has uh, so the alliance obviously um, you know got started now in uh, 2013, and as a result of a G8 meeting. Um, so where does it stand now after five years from these three pillars? I mean, where have you made the most um, advance? Sure. So the, our, our predecessor organization called the U.S. National Advisory Board um, was indeed started in 2013 as part of the G7 mm-hmm. Social Impact Investment Task Force, founded and led by Sir Ronald Cohen. Um, and as the culmination of that um, the U.K.'s presidency of the, of the, the G7, each of the G7 countries delivered a federal a policy paper to federal policymakers in their respective countries, um, and mm-hmm. ours was called uh, Private Capital for Public Good. And it was very broad-ranging in its, its recommendations, and what's so fascinating to see, and perhaps we can talk about, is how many of those recommendations have been implemented since. Um, I joined uh, the, the alliance as a, the inaugural executive director in the uh, the, the fall of 2016, actually a week before the presidential election. And so I've been um, leading the charge for about 18 months. Right. And yeah. now, um, in terms of what has happened uh, in the U.S., because obviously, you know, this is very exciting, um, can you share with the audience what has happened so far in terms of the alliance's work and what has that uh, advocated or catalyzed um, in terms sure. of, the, of what it's been trying to do? Sure. Um, so maybe I'll start with policy. Um, sure. And uh, as I indicated uh, a moment ago, I, I started at, uh, at the alliance the week before the, the presidential election. And right. I think so that was yes. Have... So that was an interesting time to to start. Needless to, <laughs> to say, yes. Yes, yes, it was indeed. And um, we, uh, I I will say any time you have an administration change, there's always, of course, uncertainty about how, uh, you know, issues will be played out. 
Um, mm-hmm. And um, with, but with the, the the presidency in both houses of Congress being held by the same uh, party, you know, we were uh, we were you know cautiously optimistic. I would say we've had a fundamental contention that impact investing is something that could have appeal across the political spectrum. And I will say that that has really been borne out in the last 18 months. Um, There have been a couple of recent policy wins um, that I'd love to to share about. Um, Mm -hmm. One uh, was part of the the tax bill, which is, as you know, came through in December of last year and was a once in a generation uh, uh, moment that, you know, tax bills happen, you know, every 30 years or or so. And there was a a piece of that tax bill called uh, uh, Investing in Opportunity Act and is now called Opportunity Zones that was part of the tax bill, that's the first new community investment incentive in the last 15 years since something called New Markets Tax Credits. And it's really um, uh, a capital gains um, investment incentive to drive uh, investment capital to uh, the most distressed communities in the United States. Um, And happy to talk a little bit more deeply about that in a moment, but but that was one uh, uh, policy win and we've been doing a lot of work on implementation there. Uh, the second... Right. Let me just, part uh, of the- Fran, just for our listeners, let me just sort of go a little bit deeper on that. Um, sure. Because obviously you know, we, we heard about the Opportunity Zone, which is fantastic. Now, just for our listeners, um, for them to understand, because when we are giving a donation, for example, in the U.S., we get, obviously, um, you know, now it's a little different, obviously, and some laws have changed, but... In general, you get a tax benefit. So why would someone um, give, uh, make an investment to get tax benefit on the capital gains rather than just give a donation in these communities? So mm-hmm. do you mind walking mm-hmm. us through it for our listeners? No, not at all. And it gets to some kind of fundamental numbers that I'd love to lay out. Um, mm-hmm. So we know that in order to achieve the SDGs, uh, the United Nations and others have projected um, uh, an investment capital need of anywhere from three or four to seven or eight trillion dollars a year if we want to achieve mm-hmm. the SDGs right. globally. Um, mm-hmm. And in comparison to that, all of U.S. Um, professional grant making in the United States, so not individual grant making, but professional grant making, is about sixty mm-hmm. billion dollars a year, and right. foreign aid not including military, is about $30 billion a year. Mm-hmm. So when you just look at the order of magnitude of the tools at our disposal, they're just, they're, they're orders of magnitude different. And um, right. there's an increasing understanding, of course, as your listeners would know, that uh, we need to bring, in order to address the magnitude of the issue at hand, we need to align our investment capital. And so right. I think the thinking is that uh, policies that, um, you know, tax credits and, and other kinds of policies, regulatory um, policies, can be incredible um, conduits or catalyzers to flow more capital um, into these communities. And in fact, you know, some of us believe that the scale that a private sector um, investment or a private enterprise can achieve can conceivably be greater and more sustaining than, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the results of a grant, uh, not right. to position impact investing against grant making. But um, I right. think fundamentally, those of us in the field believe the scalability of, of, uh, of impact business solutions. 
Right. And I think this is, again, I mean, this is obviously the fact that you can get a tax break on a capital gain. Um, it's just really icing on the cake, you know, as well. The fact that you are making an impact, you will get the money back. And if you make anything on top of that, you will getting a, you'll be getting a tax break. Now, interestingly, there are also community development banks, right, working in these areas. So um, how does that play in with the Opportunity Zone? in terms of the, yeah. the setup? Sure. So, um, yeah, we've been doing a lot of work in Opportunity Zones and working with um, the community development finance institution, community, community um, bank, uh, CDFIs, loan funds, um, uh, credit unions, and others uh, alongside the, uh, community development venture capitalists to understand how Opportunity Zones can help amplify their existing work, could potentially be a new source of tax advantage capital so that they can, you know, deepen and extend their work in um, the most distressed communities in the United States, and even how the, the Opportunity Zone benefit could interoperate with other programs and incentives that exist at the federal level, but also at the state and local level. Um, so as your listeners may know, there are a number of community investment incentives that already exist from the Community Reinvestment Act that encourages banks to provide equitable access right, to credit exactly. in these mm -hmm. kinds of communities, and the CDFI fund, which is run by the Treasury Department, that offers bond guarantees to community development uh, finance institutions. So we think that there are a lot of opportunities to cluster um, programs and benefits in a way that will enhance the outcomes for these communities mm -hmm. in need. Right. That's fantastic. And uh, and there is another one which just recently this uh, bill got passed, right? Um, do you want to talk about yes. that, the Social Impact Partnership? To pay sure, for that? yes. It's, mm -hmm. The acronym is CIPRA, which stands for mm -hmm. the Social Impact Partnerships to Pay for Results Act. And mm -hmm. it is the first federal outcomes fund uh, that will support state and local pay-for-success projects um, mm -hmm. across the full range of government social services. So, um, we, we know that there um, is a, a growing um, pay-for-success and social impact bond market in the United States, and um, but oftentimes there's something that we call the wrong pocket problem, um, mm -hmm. where if there are state and local uh, social impact bonds or pay-for-success contracts, there may be federal benefit um, in terms of cost reductions that are enjoyed by the federal government, but that um, kind of aren't... Uh, compensated to the to the other municipal and state governments. And so this is um, really like a, a kind of innovation fund that can fund feasibility studies and that can also um, have uh, employ mechanisms to try to obviate the wrong pocket problem. Um, and as you know, uh, because you work in this space yourself, Doreen, um, with the, the recent bond that, that you issued around uh, for women in the United States and women's health, um, these are very potentially potent uh, uh, sources of impact and also innovation. So, for example, right. um, you know, there's a Salt Lake County pay-for-success bond that was used to increase access to pre-K education. Um, mm -hmm. The state of Connecticut is looking uh, pay-for-success as a tool to finance substance abuse intervention among parents for, of young children. And what's so fascinating about this tool and what we hope this federal fund will foster is really using kind of private sector style innovation um, and then allowing government to take what works 
to identify what works and then take it to scale. Right, right. Now, one of the things, obviously, um, on the pay for success is really the measurement, right? So because the investors will get paid only if the social outcome is met. So is there some sort of uh, agreement in terms of what these measurements are in the U.S.? I mean, are people coming to some consensus, or is it sort of one instrument at a time when this is being determined? No, you've touched on such an important point, Doreen. Um, and, and for now, it, is, it really is um, one instrument at a time. We have um, kind of third-party actors, if you will, social impact fund investment banks like social finance and third sector that structure these um, these tools and then, um, you know, contract for third-party evaluation. Um, but for now, it is uh, relatively bespoke. I will say that the right. state of Connecticut, which I mentioned earlier, is looking at, um, at uh, rate cards, um, mm -hmm. and there are, is even some murmurings on Capitol Hill about a rate card legislation. Uh, rate cards are... Um, tools that uh, the, the, the government can issue to say, here's what they're willing to pay on a financial basis for XYZ outcome. And there the right. UK is really has been leading um, in the development and issuance of rate cards. And that right. creates more now, of a... You know, the interesting thing, right. So the interesting thing, Fran, is if you look at sort of the pay for performance, and again, you know, obviously you and others have done a fantastic job in pushing uh, the policy side of it, and it's, it's taking off. But the reality also is that it is still is a philanthropic type of tool because the investors have to, um, to bear a lot of most of the risk and they have no control um, over the outcomes because obviously, you know, the organizations who are creating the social impact, um, they're the ones, you know, who have control over it, but yet investors don't get paid if the outcome is not met. So the interesting thing is, do you think at some point, because it is still a philanthropic tool, um, at some point the investors are going to say, hold on, this is just you know, philanthropy in another way. Uh, I mean, what is the thought? Because interestingly, where we are um, sort of operating in Asia and Pacific, uh, the investors are, you know, they are very much finance first and impact second. So they are very much from the camp that, you know what, if you're coming in, if it's impact investing, we want to get paid and we actually want our risk to be mitigated in every way. So how is that playing out in, in the market in the U.S.? Yeah, a couple, a couple things come to mind. Um, I, I agree that, uh, especially in the early days, uh, the first uh, social impact bonds, um, highly innovative tool, high transit cost. Um, and I think that we're still in a, a proving ground. Um, mm -hmm. That said, if you look at um, kind of downstream externalities that some of these social impact bonds may um, ameliorate, I think that if we could start thinking both as a private sector and in the, in the government sector, more around impact transparency, because we know that every investment and every intervention has positive and negative externalities, many of which are not priced. And I hope to see a time where um, uh, those downstream uh, costs and challenges to, to taxpayers 
avoided by these sorts of interventions could potentially be priced in, um, mm. to making them actually, you know, highly attractive on a risk-adjusted basis. Right. So that's one thing. Um, right. The second thing is what we're starting to see in the U.S., and I don't know if you're starting to see this in Asia and elsewhere, is in a way a disintermediation of the private investor and pay-for-success mm. contracts. Um, where, um, you know, the government is taking the risk versus shifting the risk on to mm. investors. Yeah, unfortunately, so, we're not um, seeing it. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, so that's something but it's good. That I mean, I think that's where the policies come in and the U.S. work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a real appetite among legislators in Congress and the Senate to start thinking in a nuanced way about what, what we're, we've been calling um, outcomes-based governments. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there will, you know, there's a need for the private sector in especially around innovation. Um, mm -hmm. But I also think that there could be a kind of a, um, a, a pure government transaction with nonprofit organizations delivering social service. Um, and finally, right. what I think is fascinating is we're starting to see um, kind of secondary products emerge or fu fund of social impact bonds. And so there's a, um, a fund. Uh, uh, out of a firm called Maycomb Capital um, that is what, what I understand to be the first fund of pay-for-performance pay instruments, and that mm -hmm. can get a, help investors get broad exposure across investment themes and geographies in a really interesting way, and we will be looking to see additional such product development as a way of attracting investors to the sub-asset class, if we can call it that. Right. Right. Uh, no, it, it is. It is. It is very interesting to see all this development. So, just for our listeners, um, you're listening to From Backstreet to Wall Street, a series that explores how impact investing is linking the remotest part of the world to the global financial markets. And today's episode is creating an enabling policy environment for impact investing. And we are thrilled to have as our guest Fran Siegel from the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, and I'm Durin Janad from Impact Investment Exchange. Now, Fran, you had mentioned in another interview that out of the $8.7 trillion globally invested in impact, quote-unquote, um, only about 60 to $80 billion are invested in deep impact, uh, referring to the private in enterprises working directly to create impact. Uh, would you sort of consider the changes in the U.S. policy as promoting deep impact? And we, we talked about some of these policies and what more can be done to promote the deep impact and to create awareness um, around deep impact. Mm. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that was from a, a year or two ago, and so the $8.7 trillion is actually um, U.S. and uh, mm -hmm. a U.S. investment number from U.S. SIF. Right. The global number at that time was $23 trillion from global SIF. And then the number for deep impact, which is a GIN number, was, then 60 to 80 billion, and now is I think something like 230 billion. Their most recent study, so definitely growing at a very high compound annual growth rate, but still a small percentage of uh, you know the public market exposure, which is you know ESG, environmental, social, mm -hmm. and governance investment exposure to the public markets exposure to green bonds and other things. And so you know the question about what we how we can use policy and. You know, a number of the policies that I mentioned, I think, have done, and I hope will do, a, a, a very strong job at driving capital to um, what what we call deep impact, whether it's the, the pay-for-success instruments that we talked about a moment ago, um, 
whether it's the Opportunity Zone benefit, which um, one thing I didn't mention that I wanted to highlight for the, for the listeners is that um, that there is no impact reporting currently in the statutory language. And so mm. one of the things we have been working on in partnership with a few other organizations is uh, a convening of data um, reporting and evaluation experts to try to come to consensus around what, uh, what uh, kind of baseline impact reporting could look like for the Opportunity Zone benefits and how impact investors and philanthropies can use their investment leverage to encourage opportunity funds to actually meet that and actually a higher bar. Um, and so in general, I think what's interesting to think about um, is, uh, you know, there are places where we kind of uh, use regulation and tax incentives to drive uh, behavior. Um, but there are times when we also appeal to the private market um, to raise the bar on impact reporting and raise the bar on deep impact. So wanted to highlight that we're doing a bunch of work around um, making opportunity zones um, more impact transparent and accountable. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that some of the policy incentives that I mentioned earlier, like Community Reinvestment Act and CDFI fund, have done, plus actually the early foundation investing and program-related investments, which is below-market rate of return investments um, in the 70s and the 80s, has really given rise to a very robust community development finance institution landscape. There are about a 1,000 CDFIs in the country um, right. deploying billions of dollars a year. And so we're very bullish on, on both policy and also um, private partnerships and schemes to raise the bar on deep impact over time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in terms of even, say, there are now a lot of uh, private sector funds, the large funds who are coming into the impact space, and there's a lot of sort of discussion around, again, how deep is that impact. Do you think on the policy side in the next few years, will there be any discussion around sort of, as you just said, you know, putting in, in legislation about measuring that impact? And um, Because I would think this also plays into how you market your product, right? I mean, if the investors think they're, you're creating impact and it's such a broad word, they will buy in, but there are various shades of impact. So what can be done in the policy level or in the advocacy level um, to create, uh, you know, behavioral change or more awareness around this? Yeah, we see this in both the private markets and the public markets. On the public market side, um, right now, impact disclosure is voluntary. Most, mm. you know, the vast majority of Fortune 500 companies disclose, you know, they have sustainability reports, but the, you know, disclosure on this mandated disclosure on the 10K is something that we think could be transformative. Um, but I think that that's a low probability um, at this time. Um, there is a private movement around long-termism and moving bonds beyond the slavish focus on quarterly returns of Wall Street and um, corporate managers. And in fact, mm -hmm. I believe Unilever has gone to, you know, twice a year reporting instead of quarterly reporting. And so I think mm -hmm. that there's a private long-termism approach that also manifests in the private markets um, right. and, uh, and, you know, encouraging long-term patient capital. Um, and so right. I think both... Um, uh, we can look at, at policy um, policy tools as well as 
um, you know, collective action among private asset owners uh, to right. encourage the evolution of the market toward impact. Right. So what is, what is sort of, um, is there a number that the alliance is, is looking at that they want to, with the policy changes, unlock X, um, you know, amount of uh, capital for deep impact? Or is there some, what is the goal for the alliance for the next mm-hmm. five years? Yeah, specifically on the policy side, we don't, it's hard to put a number to it because we, we don't control capital deployment in that way. Right. But um, right. we think that there's opportunities uh, on the opportunity side to, um, to release, you know, certainly billions of dollars um, and, and maybe even more. I mean, there's uh, something like $7 trillion of appreciated assets in the public markets that could be fair right. game. That's the addressable market. So we're, Right. Uh, we're kind of very bullish on that. Um, and um, on the policy side, as you know, um, some of this has to do with kind of political will and the political mm-hmm. wins. And so mm-hmm. um, we are committed to um, working with members of, of Congress and the Senate to, um, you know, seek out leadership among those legislators who understand the benefit of pro- partnering with private investors for public good. Um, where it could be manifested in an infrastructure bill um, in, you know, in this administration. Um, it's, it's hard to, to, to know um, if and when that will come to pass. Um, mm-hmm. But I think you know, that for us, the long-term vision is impact transparency and impact accountability uh, and right. getting to some of that questions around externalities that we talked about. We know that all impact, uh, pardon me, all investments have impact, all, you know, what we eat, what we drive, how we vote, everything has an impact. And so, but, but the impact is opaque. And so I think that they will be, as we see wealth transfer to women and millennials, we see generational wealth transfer, and we see the rise of, um, you know, technology tools. I think there'll be it even, there is a drumbeat around impact transparency, and I think it will rise over time. And so our long-term vision uh, for impact investing um, is impact transparency, which is why one of the one of the things we say at the alliance is the future of investing is impact investing, um, right. and because we're so rooted in that belief around uh, the the demand and the requirement of impact transparency over time. Right. So I guess along the same lines, um, you know, the last thing I would sort of ask you is, um, you know, we have, we do have obviously a lot of policymakers among our listeners, um, both from the U.S. and from the rest of the world. So for those who are listening and interested in sort of bringing impact investing to mainstream, I mean, what, what advice would you give them? How should, they, how should they do it? How should they get started? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, as part of the um, Opportunity Zone benefit, we've been meeting with more mayors and, and, and governors. And so when we think about policymakers, we think about certainly, you know, policymakers in Washington, but also policymakers on the state and local level. I think that there's a huge opportunity at this time where a lot of the power is being pushed down to the states by the federal government for, you know, governors to rise up and mayors to rise up um, and to look for tools that can flow capital and, and also economic benefit more equitably. And so um, really just a, 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 an open, uh, you know, call to action or an open uh, voice letter to policymakers at the state and local level and the federal level that, um, that there are tools that, that exist, there are tools that we can learn from, um, from other countries, 
and there are tools that you can develop in order to flow more private capital for public good in your cities, in your state, in your district, um, and in your country. Right. Wow, that's fantastic. And so the, really the power lies with uh, each of these policymakers, even in a local level. And really you can effectively, you know, as we like to say, connect sort of the back street to Wall Street um, at, at every level. So this is absolutely brilliant. Well, Fran, thank you so very much. You're doing amazing work. So hats off to you and the Alliance for all the work that you're doing. And, uh, you know, this is incredible. And for our listeners as, as well to learn in terms of the transparency, in terms of the uh, multiplier effect of, of the work that you are, you are initiating. We are super excited and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you for joining the show. Jareen, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You just listened to uh, Fran Siegel about the policy issues regarding impact investing space in the U.S. And we have now, um, to give you another view, uh, Jonathan Wong, who is with us from all the way from Bangkok, Thailand. And, sh- and he is the Chief of Technology and Innovation at UNSCAP. And let me just sort of uh, tell you what that is. That's the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and Pacific. And Jonathan is here today to share with us the role of effective policy and technology in, in encouraging impact investing in Asia Pacific. Jonathan, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. So as we always do with our show, and Fran shared this with us, um, you know, before you, you know, let's start with your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you started instead of connecting, as we like to say, the back street, you know, to the Wall Street, and in your case, leveraging technology and innovation. Sure. Thank you very much. So it's interesting. Rather than more luck than judgment, I've always had innovation in my job title. It wasn't by design. (laughs) Uh, And and curiously, my, my, my wife always asks me, what I do. What are you innovating? Uh, and, uh, and also, <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by innovation? And I, I right. suppose this, 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 this whole podcast could be taken up with that conversation, but, but, but I'll stop there. But for me, what, what's always driven me is, is, is this belief that the biggest innovation that can happen um, for sustainable development is for economy to work better for society and the environment. And that is fundamentally what's driven me throughout my whole career, be it in the, in the public sector, the private sector, in government or advising government. So for me, that's the biggest innovation. And, uh, and, and it's certainly a belief that has started me on this journey. That's actually, yeah, I mean, that's, that's very interesting. It's almost uh, the biggest innovation that is needed, but also one of the biggest challenges, right, to bring all these different parties together and how to make them Absolutely. work. And how are you doing it? I mean, how, in terms of, of course, you know, in this show, we talk about investments for doing good. Um, mm. So, you know, how are you sort of tackling all this? And, and what are the, some of the exciting kind of new trends and innovation that you see happening in Asia on the policy sure. side? So, yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the reasons I, 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 I wanted to work for the UN was to engage government. And it struck me that when, when looking across the whole ecosystem, there was a lot, obviously a lot of work done in the private sector. Foundations are looking at this, donors, multilateral banks, etc. We're all developing strategies or policies or initiatives to, to, to foster 
an enabling environment for, for impact investing. But I was always curious that government was always the missing piece. Every time I went to an event, you'd see the foundations of impact investors, the social enterprises, etc. But the government were always very absent. And, and, and I believe that, I mean, let's, just, let's face it, governments can do very, very bad things. But equally, they could do very, very good things. And I was very curious to find out more how I could support governments on the, on the impact investment journey. Now, now, when you talk about trends, what strikes me about the Asia-Pacific, and I, 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 I previously was based in London, so, so, so came, came from Europe and worked a lot in Africa, was that some of the most interesting policies around impact enterprises and impact investment were actually coming from Asia. So to give a couple of examples, I mean, look, you look at the inclusive business accreditation scheme in the Philippines, an absolute world mm-hmm. first. You look mm-hmm. at Korea, where the social economy is actually as a percentage of GDP, contributing to the economy as much as Silicon Valley does to the U.S. Now, these are big, bold, um, uh, both results and initiatives that are being put in place. So it's really interesting that, that, that this is all happening in Asia. It seems to be a melting pot at the moment for, 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 for government policy in this space. Right. But do you think it's the government policy, or do you think that it actually is um, sort of driven by... Um, you know, private sector's sort of yeah. uh, desire to go into new markets and just sort of say, oh, hey, you know, these are new group of people we can sell our products to and let's just figure out ways to do it. Yeah, I, I think I think from from, uh, from my perspective, it's, it's a bit of both. Uh, probably more private sector, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, mm. But, of course, uh, my, my, my mandate um, covers 53 countries, so, so in Asia-Pacific, so as far west as Turkey, in, up to Russia, down to the Pacific Islands. Uh, and, and, and there are a few countries where actually government are taking the lead. So, so here in Thailand, um, the, the, the Draft Social Enterprise um, Act, um, the, the, the Impact Investment Act, these various things that are in development at the moment have been driven by government. Um, but, but certainly I think it's more private sector driven. But we are seeing these pockets of interesting work where government is taking the lead. Mm-hmm. But I think you bring up an interesting point because as we see um, – you know, in you know, we talked about it um, earlier with with Fran. I mean, there are there have been some policies in the U.S. that, uh, in terms of the social innovation fund that they had, um, but not really sort of a um, you know broad scale uh, policy in in terms of this whole space. Now, interestingly, if you look at Asia, um, there are few countries who tried to pass law. I know Korea did, um, yes. but the others really really haven't. You know. Philippines tried and Thailand tried, but in spite of that, um, things are happening. And especially if you look at, you know, sort of India or if you look at Indonesia, um, I mean, the countries where really lost is happening. Um, it's interesting. There are no policies at all. So, does the government intervention through policy sort of catalyze what's happening there, or or doesn't? I mean, how how does the policy angle come in? And where did yeah, the no, I, I think you're quite that. right. That, that, that there is this danger um, when kind of legislation or, or regulation comes in um, that, that, that it could just kill the whole space. I mean, uh, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that is a, a very serious risk given, given how many governments operate and, and, the, and the very sometimes very necessary, sometimes unnecessary bureaucracy that, that, that they put in place. I quite agree with that. Uh, and I think that what we advocate for within the UN is, is for this a more kind of adaptive approach to regulation in many ways, and maybe mm-hmm. looking at letting letting the innovation happen 
while doing what government should be doing, which is safeguarding um, uh, society as well. But uh, I think you're quite, quite right. Um, a lot more could be done by government, and a lot of this is happening despite of government. But, but, but I, I go back to my point earlier when, when I mentioned that governments have the power to do very bad things, but equally I do believe, on, on the other side of the coin, they could do some very good things. Oh, and for me, for, for me in the region, um, if we look at what what is the vision of the future we want in Asia-Pacific and yeah. in, in this space, I mean, for me, ideally, you want all investments to be impact investments, all enterprises to of be course. impact enterprises. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, I think government policy can play a really critical role in that. I mean, mm-hmm. the sorts of things that I'd be advocating governments to do, and we're still some way off this, and I think we have to be very humble of, of where the likes of you and I are on this on this impact investing journey is that it's kind of a baby really isn't it <laughs> if, yeah, if we look yeah. in a hundred years time we'll be kind of a, a footnote at the very start of all this in history I, I, I'm convinced of that is that governments right. really need to actually push this from the margins to the mainstream and really incentivize not just impact investors but mainstream capital to 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 to, to report on social and environmental impact alongside financial return and really embedding impact investing principles in the major things that form part of the economy. So things like government procurement, trade agreements, uh, and stock exchanges. Right. And I think that's where we need to go. Now, now, the private sector, I don't think, can do that. You know, governments negotiate trade agreements. They look after government procurement. There is a whole bunch mm-hmm. of regulation around stock exchanges, as you, as you well know. And that's where mm-hmm. I think government can really play that role in moving this to, 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 to some massive scale. Right. Um, so... You know, sort of keeping all of this in mind, I mean, can you give our readers a better idea in terms of what uh, UNSCAP actually does um, in making all this happen? I mean, how do you kind of bring the governments together on the table and get them to think about these things? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's very hard, <laughs> is, is, is the honest answer. Um but a lot of the work we do, I, I kind of put it in three strands. Uh, I, I, I mm-hmm. said we do a lot of advocacy work, which okay. I, I think is quite important with governments because you have to kind of socialize this language and, and socialize mm-hmm. the concepts within, within the fabric of government so that mm-hmm. they see um, impact investing and impact enterprises as, 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 as critical part of their portfolio as they think about fiscal policy or, or, or monetary policy. You know, that, that's where we kind of want to get to ideally. So you have to do that. Now, now what's interesting is how, how policy is generally made. And, and, and what I've found from my experience is it, it's more about, it's less about look at the evidence and develop a policy. I wish it was more of that. But, but more governments like to be inspired in many ways. They, they like to hear of, of the inspiration stories of what another government is doing not so far away uh, in, in their region. And I think that's what we try and do is to bring these policymakers together actually socialize the language, inspire them, to, and, and, and kind of move forward from there. Um, a lot of the work we also do with, with governments is around the research side of things. So, so, we, we, we'll, so for example, in Pakistan, I, I'm out there next week, um, where they're developing a sense of social enterprise. So we do a big mapping of Pakistan, look, look at the gaps, um, uh, look, look where we think government policy should, should play, should play a, a role and, and move on from there. So the broadly kind of two-pronged approach we take to that. Right. So now it's interesting. Um, you have now done a number of policy dialogues with the British Council and, um, you know, looking at the gaps uh, in the policy space for supporting impact investing. So um, I would think they're, 
you have to have the policies first to, to have the gaps. I'm curious, uh, one, where does British Council come into all this? Because growing up, British Council, I remember we would go to there for their library and to learn English. Yeah. <laughs> so how, you know, what role is British Council playing all this? Why the UK government is so into this? And what, you know, how are they using the British Council? Um, and you know, where does this sort of, you know, the UNSCAP's relationship with that in terms of these policy dialogues? Yeah, I mean, where this all came from was, and I, I was working in the UK government at the time. It was when David Cameron mm. was prime minister. Um, one of the key um, policy of objectives of, of his G20 president, sorry, G8 presidency um, at the time was to mm-hmm. really share the experiences of, of, of impact investing that, that happened in the UK. So it was very much mm-hmm. a look at the UK experience. Um, how can we use that, shall we say, to contextualize mm-hmm. that into, into, into other environments? And, and of course, a lot of the work that the British Council do is is actually to advocate for certain, um, traditionally, the more cultural aspects of, 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 of UK culture and moving that, moving that overseas. But, and, Jonathan, and let me jump in there. But the UK, um, a few things that I'm curious, because that's why that, this is sort of interesting. You know, when you have someone like British Council, which is the voice of the UK government, so is this the UK government's view of how policy should be? Is it influenced by that? And secondly, in the UK, um, this whole space is very non-profit driven. Um, and it's very much sort of uh, um, the government-driven. You know, there's a third sector and all that. And and at least from what we hear, that's one of the reasons also it's not growing as much, right? So, yeah. so I'm curious. I mean, how does all that play into you know what British Council, the role that they're taking in these policy dialogues with you? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, having been a UK civil servant myself, of course. Your, your role, to some extent, is, is to follow the party line, shall we say. Um, uh, there, there is certain policy objectives that, 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 that a UK government will have. Um, mm-hmm. But, but since, since, since I moved to the UN, of course, I, I now have no nationality. <laughs> That's a good place uh, to be, right? Okay. Um, but, okay. And certainly what I found is that this, this, you're right, this extraction of, of policy and experience from if you like, the Wall Street to the back streets or the developed to developing world from Europe to Asia um, is, is, is difficult and is sometimes not relevant. Uh, and you're quite right. Mm-hmm. I think certainly what we saw from Europe is that this movement was born moving from the NGO sector and the civil society sector. It, it definitely was. Mm-hmm. While certainly in Asia, it's coming from a more private sector angle, coming from the other side right. of the spectrum. And, and it's interesting to see how, how, which governments take which approach? Because sometimes it boils down to that. I mean, a lot of the time mm. it boils down to the politics uh, in many ways. But I think in some countries, certainly they're seeing um, kind of pieces of both, if you like, and taking the best of both worlds and trying to implement that going forward. Right, right. Now, that, 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 that's, a, that's a good way of kind of looking at it, and, uh, and we'll see how this all plays out, right? It's still early stage. Now, let's talk about some of the concrete stuff you're doing. I mean, um, mm. because we worked at, from IAX, we worked on a paper with you on innovative financing um, for APEC, so the, the Asia-Pacific region. And uh, there were some recommendations there. And frankly, now you're sort of jumping in and trying to uh, support some of these sort of innovative finance, which I'm assuming... Mm. Um, you know, you're going to play a role in. So wh- wh- why are you embracing innovative finance? Why this push? And what do you think is going to 
how this is going to, uh, you know, sort of uh, yeah. transform. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I must confess, I mean, when, when I joined the UN um, SCAP, um, mm. I was the first chief of technology innovation ever here, which is both good and bad. Good in the sense mm -hmm. that you can set your own agenda, bad in the sense that you have to kind of ingrain this new area of work within the organization and, and sell these concepts to, to our member states uh, and, and the countries who, 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 are, who I support. Uh, and, and having come from the UK and, and again, worked uh, as a head of innovation at DFID, a lot of our work there was around social enterprise, um, impact enterprises, impact investment, mm. and, and really from looking at it from a donor perspective. It's a very small so scale. Kind of, so, like, small, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Uh, mm. And I wanted to move this across um, into my UN work, if you like, and, and mm. have this as a, as a core pillar. Now... I, th I think what the report did was just shine a light on some of the interesting stuff that was going on in the region. I think no more than that. Um, okay. I think as many of the governments weren't aware, but, but if, I, if I look at some of the results, if you like, that have come from that or, mm. or, or, or what's been evolving, it's been quite interesting. Now, now recognising that government policy is a very slow burner, so they, mm. they, they cannot be as agile as, as the private sector. We've seen some quite interesting things. I mean, I mean, one of the things for what it was worth was um, all the 53 governments in the Asia-Pacific region um, developed something called uh, the Asia-Pacific Roadmap for the Achievement of the SDGs. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time in the history of the UN, and it happened in Asia-Pacific, where the words social enterprise and impact investing appeared in the UN resolution, which all governments Wow, invested. okay. I know. Okay. I, was, I was very, my mother and father were very proud of me. What can I say? <laughs> but, but it appeared in there. And the, what this gave me and, and my team was, was a, a solid commitment by resolution by countries to create an enabling environment for impact investing. And, and, and from there, what, what we're seeing now is, 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 as you mentioned, the work in Indonesia and, and various countries, governments are really experimenting with policy, which, which I think is, is a good thing um, uh, at the moment. I think, I think the key will be the evaluation of these policies going forward. And, and as you know, when we were putting that report together, we were saying kind of what the results. And in, in many ways, I think we were a little too early with that report. You know, we, we should have given it maybe two, three, five years and said, okay, here is something a, a government X did. What was the impact? Uh, so it would be interesting, actually, for us to revisit that um, in a few years' time to actually say right. if, if the purpose of this was to shine a light, actually, what was the impact of that? I, and I think that will be right. critical in, in, in moving towards the evidence-based policy scenario that I, I touched on earlier. All right. Well, um, just for our listeners, uh, we're listening to From Backstreet to Wall Street, um, our series that explores impact investing and in linking the remotest parts of the world to the, the global financial market. So in today's episode is creating an enabling policy environment for impact investing. And we have our guest, Jonathan Wong from UNSCAP. And I'm Doreen Chanaz from Impact Investment Exchange. Jonathan, let's pick up on what we were just talking about, that you said, oh, perhaps we're a little too early, you know, and then we wrote this report of innovative finance. Now, are we? I mean, what, where do, what's the goal? What's the outcome? What are some of the numbers that you're trying to achieve? I mean, um, don't you need, you know, sort of big instruments and creative innovative financing to make these happen? So tell us first the numbers that you're looking at. Uh, next well, year, two years, well, uh, three years, and how are you going to achieve it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's an interesting and very hard question. Thank you. <laughs> by, by the way, um, I, I think in terms of w w what I said when we're, we're it, it, this report was a little early, I, I meant it in terms of 
government policy? Because I think there are very mm. interesting things going on in the private sector, which are really demonstrating mm -hmm. results. I think the stuff that donors are funding, that certain foundations doing, that, that, that is certainly showing results. I think on the government policy side of things, the results of what they want to achieve is, 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 is still unverified, shall we say. Right. I think right. you're quite well, right, actually, uh, around when mm -hmm. you mentioned numbers. I, I, think, I think in terms of impact in the private sector, I think you, you know broadly that there's a number on financial returns and there's a number probably on lives impacted. I don't think we've done so much work and, and the ecosystem has done that much work on actually what a government metric would look like. For, 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 for policy that's interesting. That's interesting. So you don't even Sorry. link it to the sustainable development goals or anything like that? I, I, I think we have to. I, I think we have mm -hmm. to. Um, but, but even then, I think at an at a, at a initiative or policy level, it probably has to go even greater depth. I think using the SDGs as an overarching framework, which essentially is what it is to guide not just the governments, but, but the private sector, civil society, uh, and other stakeholders. Actually, really drilling down into into what is the impact um, we want to achieve through the, the, these these various policy initiatives, it's still for me a slightly unanswered question, uh, and certainly right. one that, that 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 warrants further research. Right, right. Well, um, so let's talk about something a little bit more concrete. It seems like a lot of things are kind of brewing and 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 sort of uh, being thought about. Um, how about these platforms that you recently? launched. Um, you know, one is with the Islamic Development Bank and the other with the Asia Foundation. Uh, what are these platforms? I mean, are they actual platforms or are they just websites with information? I mean, what, what, what are they? Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the advisory board for, for the Asia Foundation and, and, and my organization recently signed an MOU with, with the Islamic Development Bank. And mm. I, I think the premise of all, of all of these things is that, and as you well know, I think, I think for me, Innovation happens when you connect the right people. There's a question of timing, but when you get the right people together, I'm sure you've had it as well, and I've had it with you, where we've had a chance conversation, and it's bubbled and grown into something quite interesting and impactful. I think the whole premise from both these platforms is to do just that, to actually just connect innovators, entrepreneurs, investors from around the world to make these connections and do something interesting together. I mean, what, what, what particularly interests me about the work with the Islamic Development Bank is that I, th I think impact investing as a concept really has the opportunity to transcend politics, religion, um, all these things that, that tend to cause conflict <laughs> in, 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 in today's yeah. world. Uh, and and I, that's why we were really keen to engage with the Islamic Development Bank, actually, on yeah. this one. Uh, and... and, and, and very much so, maybe because I'm from Europe. It was very much kind of a Western phenomenon, if you like. Um, the whole right, but let me also, let me sort of push, right, so let me push you on that, Jonathan. And again, you know, um, this subject is obviously a little close to my heart, being a Muslim woman. Um, yeah. The Are you using this opportunity for to sort of address some of the, Human rights issues, you know, some of the issues, which again, you know, it, it is, it should be all part of sort of yeah. investing the right way, right? Um, yeah. Are these being touched on? Are these being discussed? And, and again, going back to this platform, um, what is this platform? I mean, is it just convening? Is it another name for convening, or is it actually a 
equity crowdfunding platform or is it a, I mean, what is it? So two questions. No, it, it, it's, I mean, just, just on the first point on what the objective is, it, it does specifically focus on, on, on five SDGs, and I can never remember them all. Um, but, but mostly around green technology, water and sanitation. Mm -hmm. So if you have the classic um, development sectors. On, on what the mm -hmm. platform is, it, it really is just to connect people in many ways. But, but, but certainly this whole concept of, and, and now moving on to the Age Foundation, actually, um, they're seeing kind of online platforms as potentially a tool for development in different ways. So things they'll be exploring are things like what we worked on together with, with designing this Malaysia Social Impact Exchange. You know, you know kind of, it can be used not just to connect, connect people, but for so enterprises. It's basically convening. It's just bringing, just, it's not really a physical platform. It's just bringing I mean, it's people not, it's an online together. Platform. So workshops or conference. No, no, it's, it's, it's certainly an online platform. Is, is what it is. But do they actually work? I mean, I haven't seen it in my lifetime. Um, in no, terms no, of people it's, sort it's, of going it's, it's in. It's very and early days, actually. It's very early days. And, and, mm -hmm. and as you well know, having creating a sticky platform that people go to and incentivized to go to is a very difficult thing. Uh, and, and, and certainly, again, this was a project that was launched uh, a year ago. Um, the, the new president of the bank is, is very ambitious about all of this. It's a tough, mm. it's a tough um, project to work on, but, but we'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, you know, just to, I guess, to wrap up, our, you know, sort of in terms of what we're talking about, I think policy, there's definitely, uh, you know, absolutely a need for governments to come in where they can catalyze things um, on what is happening, sort of are brewing from the private sector or from civil society. And there's definitely a, a catalyzing element. But I think also, um, you know, it is interesting, I guess, from, from your, where you're coming from, from the UN bodies, um, you know, it, you're really at a position also, also to see, okay, where, where should we step back and where should we actually be coming in and intervening? And one of the things that we're seeing now in the space, and I just am curious to hear, you know, your answer, is more and more, you know, there's sort of a divide that's happening. You know, we're seeing a lot of these, um, uh, you know, sort of super commercial funds coming in and saying they're doing impact investing on one side, um, which is just emerging markets investing, um, and and they're looking, they're sort of framing it as, oh, we're we're doing all this social good, but the reality is, yes, perhaps, but these are really traditional investments, and then you have on this other side these uh, large non-government organizations who are coming in who frankly know nothing about investing um, or anything about how finance works, and they're coming in and they're sort of saying, oh, we now do impact investing and we have now someone here. So what is going on? I mean, yeah. I mean, is this space sort of going crazy and will it all just fall apart? I mean, because people are coming in who don't know, yeah, I know. Um, yeah. you know? What's your thought on that, and where does policy come in and all this? It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question, and, and I think there's a different, again, uh, policy response to, 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 to those things. Uh, going back to what we were discussing earlier around, you're right, I, I think in certain countries it's been kind of NGO civil society-led. In, in other countries it's been predominantly private sector-led. Um, I think it's, again, important to know where... I think we are in the in the evolution of impact investing, which is, uh, as you probably agree, quite early days in, in, in the grand scale of things. 
is, is that things are getting messy actually, and 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 when oh. you're doing innovative stuff, but things do get messy. But as a, as a government, and, and going back to the point I mentioned earlier, is in the utopian vision that we would all have of the world, all investments would be impact investments, how you and I would define it, and all enterprises would be impact uh-huh. enterprises. Now, in, in the imperfect world, it may be the case that some of these is, is having some of these super commercial funds not fully being enterprise um, um, impact enterprises, but thinking about this stuff a good thing or a bad thing in their journey, because their journey is very different to that of, a, of an NGO. Um, I think if things are moving in the right direction, I, I generally think it's a good thing. But I certainly get your point that that there is potentially this 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 impact investment washing of everything <laughs> that that goes on out there. And, uh, but I think we then have to be very careful how we define these things and how governments define these things. So so if you have a social enterprise act that gives specific tax concessions on investments into um, uh, social enterprise or indeed for the social enterprises themselves, how do you go about defining that? I mean, these are tough questions. Uh, and I think would certainly influence or incentivize these organizations, depending on where they're coming from on the spectrum, to, to, to do the right thing, whatever it is. But again, as you mentioned, there's been various um, acts that are in the pipeline and have been implemented. They all look very different in many respects. But um, right. this is the point I made earlier. I think the evaluation of these policies moving forward will be imperative to actually make sure we try and avoid some of these issues that you've just mentioned there. Good. Well, let's let's sort of um, that uh, you know that's a very interesting sort of perspective and and a, and a probably very practical one uh, to look through. So, um, Jonathan, I, when we need to wrap up, and I think it'll be good to get from you sort of some words of hope and, uh, <laughs> and how do you think we'll come to the time and how long do we have to wait. Um, yeah. Before you know, we're not connecting Wall Street to Back Street, but there's only one street. Um, yeah. So, and where will policy come into all this? And when will we see this? You think? Yeah, I wish I, I wish I knew. That's the million dollar question. <laughs> the, 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 the sooner the better. I mean, but quite frankly, if if if, if governments and, and sorry, I, I've been speaking a lot of governments now because I, of course, I work for the UN. But, but the, the, what, is, what, is, what is unique about the Sustainable Development Goals is that they are time-bound. So we have till 2030, which, which, which ain't long away, actually. It's, what, what 12 years? Um, so so I, I think we need things to happen pretty quickly if, if we're to meet the ambitions right. of, of the SDGs. I, I think that's one thing. I, th- I think that the words of hope, I mean, on technology, I do think technology can be a real equalizer and really support inclusivity. And, and, and the, mm-hmm. these pockets of work that you're seeing um, organizations developing AI that can diagnose as quickly and as effectively as, as a human doctor, or a lot, a lot of work, as you know, around ed tech. I think mm. it's really promising in, 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 in demonstrating models that could be really cost-effective to deliver essential services to the very poorest people. And, and on the impact investing side, I, again, I, I think the key thing is how you move this, as you said, from the margins um, to, the, to the mainstream and, and engaging private sector in pure impact investing. And, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the call, Doreen, I promise you, but I think some of the work you're mm-hmm. doing on Women's Livelihood Bonds, when you're actually getting mainstream private capital, um, focusing and targeting on development objectives is certainly a model that is going to be needed going forward because with the, what is it, $2.5 trillion funding gap for the SDGs per annum, 
um, right. that, that has been predicted. Donor money, foundation money, government money is just a drop in the ocean. It, it's going to be unlocking the private sector capital. And we need to find really good models like the WLB um, right. that can actually demonstrate and do that. So, so, so more of that, please, and I'll, I'll put the onus back on you. <laughs> right. No, thank you. Thank, thank you for that. And Yes, and I think uh, we need to have, you're absolutely right, you know, more of Women's Livelihood Bond and more of bringing issues that are important kind of front and center. And as you know, in, in our case, it really was putting women front and center of capital Absolutely. markets. And, and then, of course, you know, everything else. So, um, so no, I'm glad, I'm glad that, uh, you know, we could and make it work. And then you can move on to the 16 SDGs after that. <laughs> right. Now, good. Well, thank you, Jonathan. This was absolutely fabulous. And uh, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, we wish you all the best in changing policies all across Asia-Pacific. Thank you very much, For the good. Today. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.